Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Friday Reporter Podcast. It's a podcast where me, Lisa, the host, interviews journalists and the journalism adjacent about their work. The Friday Reporter Podcast is in partnership with PR Daily. And if you don't know about PR Daily, it is a tremendous uh, resource for communicators like myself and you and and the folks you work with. Uh, PR Daily actually just launched what's called the PR Daily Leadership Network. It's a peer-to-peer brainstorming and networking opportunity for mid-level communicators, uh, access to uh, measurement of SEO, uh, business fluency, presentation training, lots of other opportunities there at prdaily.com. If you're interested in the PR Daily Leadership Network, be sure to mention that you heard about it on the Friday Reporter Podcast to receive $500 off of your membership. Well, hello, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today is an especially fun conversation that I'm looking forward to because my friend and my colleague, Scott Jennings, who you see on TV uh, a lot of times as myself, uh, as a pragmatic Republican, thank you for your voice there, uh, and for the work you do, Scott Jennings is uh, not only a writer and a conservative commentator, he's a contributor to CNN, he spends a lot of time writing for them online for USA Today to the LA Times. Uh, Scott, hello. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for this invitation. And it's very nice to see you. It is very nice to see you other than on the tube. Um, Because I see you doing, you're doing a ton of commentating right now. It's really busy. In fact, I'm catching you today, uh, right across the hall from the green room in Hudson Yards for CNN, right? I mean, this, this is where you are. You're on the road. You're talking about what's happening. You're right. I'm. Uh, I just in uh, June uh, surpassed my five year anniversary with CNN. I've seen a lot of seen a lot of folks come and go in the in the last five years, right. and uh, and certainly lived through the pandemic and uh, and the Trump years. And uh, I guess we're still living through those. And so <laughs> yes. it's been a really exciting uh, job uh, to have. And right now we're in the throes of the midterm coverage. And I'm here in New York City. I was on the nine o'clock show last night, which was last night anchored by Sarah Seidner. And it'll be uh, that way again tonight. Uh, as soon as you and I hang up, I'm going to uh, pop over to the studio and, and hop on with Victor Blackwell and uh, Allison in the afternoon nice. uh, to talk to talk midterms and what the Republicans did today in terms of their agenda. So it's uh, it's a lot of a lot of busy time right now. And I'm spending uh, more time in New York and Washington than I am at home in Kentucky. I bet you are. Talk to me a little bit about, so we came to know each other when we both worked in the Bush administration, what feels like a lifetime ago now. Uh, But since then, you have really been not only running and working in the campaign space, but also advising and, and speaking about the issues of the day. Talk to me a little bit about the evolution of your career and how you sort of came to be where you are now. Sure. I started as a journalist, actually, and uh, uh, thought I was going to be one. I, I was a reporter and an anchor when I was in college in Louisville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. and got recruited by uh, then uh, uh, Governor George W. Bush to join the Bush campaign and decided to get into politics um, and have been in it really ever since. I worked for all of Mitch McConnell's campaigns uh, from that point forward, uh, did several gubernatorial campaigns, um, congressional elections, all kinds of different consulting. As you pointed out, we worked in the Bush administration together. And then I went home to Kentucky and was looking for, you know, what I was going to do next and got into the public relations business and public affairs business and did that at another firm. And then in 2012, started my own with a couple of buddies. And we've been at it for 10 years now. We just celebrated our, our 10th anniversary. Congratulations. That's thank lot. you very much. It's It's been great. We've, we've got uh, the 20 something employees now and uh, wow. we work all over the country and 
and we're the biggest firm in Kentucky. And, and you know, it's mostly corporate consulting and do a little political consulting here and there. Uh, but most of my political work these days, candidly, is, is done on the commentary side. I still am very close to quite a few Republican politicians, but uh, I've, I've rather enjoyed returning to my journalism roots uh, with this job at CNN and, and some of the writing that I get a chance to do. You are great at it. I mean, really, I, we've like I said, I, we knew each other back on the campaign trail, but you are terrific at it. I mean, and I really appreciate this is a difficult time, really, and in, in, I don't really need to get into the back and forth of politics, but it is, it's difficult, right? Because I feel like there's a lot of indefensible things that are happening, perhaps on both sides of the aisle, right? I mean, there's a lot of... Um, the narrative is is angry and it's difficult and it's a challenge. And so I'm curious how in, when you get ready for your day, how do you prepare uh, to go on air and talk about sort of the issues of the day? Is there something that when you get up in the morning that you have to read, that you have to consume? Is there something in your day that you, anyway, how, how do you prepare for those appearances as you're going? Yeah, great question. Well, I, I consume quite a bit of material. I read, you know, uh, the, the nation's biggest papers, certainly uh, never missed the Wall Street Journal. Um, mm-hmm. And there are a lot of commentators that I look up to both here at CNN and elsewhere that I, I try to see what different people in the in the commentary space are saying. And and then I start to sort of think about my own instincts and my sure. own views. I also think a lot about, um, you know, in terms of who's watching CNN and, and what am I supposed to be doing here? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm the conservative commentator. But I'm also one of the few political commentators who lives in middle America. You know, a lot of people right. live you know, in Washington or, or New York or on the coasts. And, and so as much as being a conservative commentator, I also think of myself as, as something of a, a barometer for middle America and how middle America is going to react to the news of the day right. uh, versus what's happening in, in the urban centers and the, in the media centers. So I, I think about that a lot. That, that's how I prepare. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started doing this job, you know, I would sit down several hours in advance and start making all sorts of notes and writing things out in long form on a legal pad. But but one thing I, I've learned over the years is I think I'm better at it uh, when I'm a little bit less scripted. I mean, I certainly have my thoughts and I certainly have my views, but instead of trying to pre-script and pre-determine you know, the creation of a moment, I, I really do try to let it flow and be a little more organic. And my personal view is it makes for better conversations. You know, the only advice anyone ever gave me when I got this job was you want the audience to think of it as like uh, friends having brunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. and so no one, no one brings a legal pad to brunch. I mean, maybe no. somebody does, but they're probably not very much fun. So, <laughs> so <laughs> They don't get invited so I, very often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I have tried to treat it more uh, like organic conversations uh, than sort of prescripted thing. And I, I think it, it's, it's served me pretty well. Well, I think that another piece of that, too, is the credibility behind you being just your authentic self, talking about the issues. It is, I think, easier when you are in sort of that headspace where you're regularly asked to be a commentator, regularly asked to come on and talk about the issues of the day that allows you to sort of stay in that track and stay in that space. It's when you stop and start, you do, you know, do the tube for the first time in six months, like folks like myself, I do TV maybe two or three, four times a year. It spends, I have to spend a lot of time really getting smart about what the issues are, what are the contours of the story, what kinds of things have been said previously, whereas you're really, you're in that space uh, so often, and uh, and it shows. I mean, really, you're terrific at it. I said it before, but I mean, I'm really proud to know you, and I love uh, seeing folks that are on the tube that are authentic. I think that's good advice, right? Having brunch with a friend or... Uh, 
talking to your people back home in, in Kentucky about why the issues are, are mattering today. Well, you're, you're very kind to, to say those nice things about what I'm doing. I, I, um, I try to be authentic. Mm-hmm. I try to be honest. Um, I try not to pull any punches. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that puts me in the position of, of being, you know, a voice over here versus, mm-hmm. you know, three or four other voices. It happens uh, fairly frequently, actually. Yeah. But I don't really, I don't really worry about it because I think, um, they, you know, I'm here for a reason. I'm not mm-hmm. here to just nod along. I'm here to, to, to provide a perspective that people don't often get. Um, mm-hmm. I think in some of our national, uh, political affairs coverage, I think the other, the other thing that, that I think about is, um, why are you here? And, and the misperception that commentators are here to only represent the perspective of a party or a politician. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm here to represent my perspective based on my values and my experiences. And mm-hmm. and if there's one thing I've learned, it's you just you can't die on every hill. I mean, I, I do think there are people who go on television and literally will die on any hill if they think it's what their party wants them to do. Right. And and that's just not that's just not the way I do it. And I, you know, I've, I said the other day on TV, you know, the problem with dying on every hill is that you're dead <laughs> and, and your credit <laughs> and your credit, your credibility, I think, depends on being able to give honest criticism of your own party or your own persuasion. I mean, you know, not every Republican does everything I want them to do. And I'm certain that not every Democrat wants, uh, does everything that every Democrat commentator wants them to do either. And I think the best conversations are when you're able to say, here's, here's where I think people are right. And here's where I think people are wrong or Mm -hmm. smart or dumb Mm -hmm. uh, and do that uh, irrespective of whether you happen to be criticizing your own party at the time. Now, obviously I'm a conservative and I'm, I'm usually lined up on the conservative side, but, but goodness knows over the last several years, there have been Republicans who did not conservative things or did things that I thought were tactically unsound. And, and the best commentators are the ones who were able to, to point that out for the audience. I think it's important. I mean, I think that, that that kind of commentating and that kind of work that you do, while it does take a little bit of courage, because sometimes you do have to say some things that you know will not make everyone happy. Uh, but let's face it, that's, that's really the charge. That's why you are where you are, because they want you to be honest and frank and give fair assessment of, of the lay of the land. We are uh, six weeks before the midterms, and historically, the White House will not pick up seats, uh, historically speaking, right? There's only been two other, three other times in recent history where we've seen the White House gain seats. As you sort of look out over the U.S., over the landscape, I'm not going to ask you to say what's going to happen in November. I'm more curious about how it is out there. You know, what are people saying out in out in the world? Are they feeling motivated by one party or another? Talk to me a little bit about sort of what are the questions of the day that you're getting about where we're going to be in November? What I find most fascinating about this midterm is I think when people think about analyzing elections, we often approach it from the perspective of there's an agreed upon set of issues that are the most important. And then we think of the campaigns or the parties sort of competing to see, well, who's going to persuade the most people that they've got the right answer to that issue. Mm -hmm. In this election, the issue, there's no agreement on the issues. I mean, the American electorate doesn't agree. Mm -hmm. So you've got the Republicans out talking to, you know, I think independents and Republican voters about inflation, economy, crime, border, quality of life type issues. And then you have the Democrats out talking about a whole different slate of things, abortion, um, democracy, Trump, uh, climate change, gun violence. So you have these two two parties, two totally different issue sets. And so you have these candidates that are 
you know, they're on the same ballot. So they're in the same ocean, but their ships are not ever crossing paths because they just they're not they're not even discussing the same issues with their expected constituency. Now, I do think um, I, I do think it, it, it I don't know what's going to happen. I, I mean, my general view is Republicans are going to win the House. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many seats. I think the Senate is is very 50 50, mm-hmm. but it will be interesting for me to see, you know, if it if it turns out that Republicans were right and that focusing on sort of cost of living, quality of life, Trump's focusing on abortion and Trump, uh, I think for political science review in the aftermath, that that'll be something I'll be, you know, analyzing. Curious you about know, for sure. But in the NBC News poll Sunday, they asked a very uh, basic, but I thought important question. And it was, and this is to registered voters, what's more important, the candidate's views on cost of living or a candidate's views on abortion. Cost of living scored 59%, abortion scored 37%. But if you look at the coverage of the midterm, it's almost entirely abortion. I mean, every yeah. every show, every panel, you know, somebody's talking about abortion and and not as many people, I think, are talking about the economic conditions of the country, which doesn't really match what the polling is telling us. Mm. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it all comes together. I'm, I'm curious because journalism has changed so much over the course of the time from when you first got started till today. What, what trends are you, as we talk about trends in politics, like what trends are you seeing in the journalism space that perhaps have changed or, or, or adjusted over time? And that's kind of a loaded question because there has been a lot of commentary around the fact that the, that the networks, not just the one that you're at, but lots of networks are trying to readjust and figure out how to reach uh, their audiences the right way. So talk to me a little bit about how you see the adjustment in journalism and maybe if you have uh, noticed any trends perhaps going, perhaps going forward. Well, you know, I think about uh, our, our shared time in the Bush administration. You know, we ran both of those presidential campaigns and then most of the Bush administration without Politico. You know, Politico was started right. in 2007. We ran it all mostly without Facebook and without Twitter. So our our time in government and, and in those campaigns was just before the explosion in political journalism and political um, you know process sort of journalism and certainly before the explosion in social media. So that's you know that's the before times and, and the after times as I as I think about it. Yeah. Um, so that that's one thing that I think is completely different. The other the other thing that I think is going on is I'm hearing from more and more Republican communicators mm-hmm. who are actively engaged in campaigns. So people who do the traditional media relations, earned media, you know, the stuff that, that we used to do, mm-hmm. that that they think this might be the last cycle where Republican campaigns actually spend any time or resources on engaging with journalists. I, I hear more and more from Republican communicators who say, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like these stories are pre-written. It feels like no matter what I say, it's all going to turn out the same. And it feels like that the framing of it is unalterable, even if the facts don't match the initial instincts of the journalist. And and I, I do sense a throwing up of the hands of wow. Republican communicators. Uh, there, w- there has been some journalism about this. There was an NPR story recently mm-hmm. about Republican campaigns simply not wanting to talk to, to journalists. And, and there's been a few people that have written about this. But, but I to me... It's happening now, and I'm not sure people have fully internalized in the next cycle. You could have major Republican campaigns saying we're we're not engaging with journalists at mainstream outlets at all. We're going to focus simply on the outlets that we trust, and we're also going to just focus on paid content distribution. And uh, and so to me, that that is a trend I think that is is 
unfolding as we speak. And I'm interested to see where it goes. It's troublesome to me. Having been a Republican from New Jersey, we ha- we didn't even have a media market. We had to pretend we had to punch above our weight every day in New York and Philadelphia. But I felt like that made us better. Um, and that's just my point of view. But but that's disappointing because I think that um, you're no longer no longer going to reach the full electorate, right? You're no longer going to reach everybody. And while I understand that people are pretty hardened in their views at this point, I mean, we are as polarized as in in recent history and anyway, since I've been alive. Um, that's a trend that's concerning to me, but I'm not surprised to hear you say that. Well, it's it it is concerning because um, I think well, I mean, you have to ask yourself what what is the purpose of a campaign, and it's to to get you know enough votes to win, mm-hmm. however that works out in the uh, in the jurisdiction you're you're running in. But then you have to build an audience to reach that, and and I just I just sense um, just to be per- perfectly honest, I yeah. just sense that that most Republican campaign professionals and, and communicators are starting to get the idea that, that there's no audience for them to be had uh, or no advantage for them to be had in engaging in, in some of these conversations. So if you're running, say, for the U.S. Senate in, I don't know, North Carolina or, or some other state and the New York Times wants to send an embed to hang out with your campaign for a couple of days, I mean, I think they're thinking hard about whether this is in their best interest. I understand that. And, and so, uh, but I think and, and I think that mindset has been there for a few years, but I think it's starting to creep into even, I mean, do I even need to talk to the local journalists? Um, yeah. and, and, and so and so for the industry of media and for journalism, I really do think there needs to be some recognition that that's happening and some question internally about why is that happening? Because you don't, you don't want that to be the case. I mean, you can't be a news outfit and can't get politicians to talk to you. And so I, I really do think we're, there's some reflection required here about from everyone who's in the business about why is that happening? Is this good for democracy and, and what can be done about it? Yeah. Yeah. No question about it. I mean, it's a big part of why I started the podcast because I felt like I wanted to better understand the journalism side. And I've had a lot of, because I started it during COVID, I've had a lot of junior Hill staff get in contact and say, you know, thanks for doing that show with whoever the member of the media is, because it's someone I've been trying to connect with but I couldn't get coffee with him or I couldn't visit with him or get to know him. Um, but now at least I understand better his beat and what he cares mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we'll have to keep an eye out for that. I do hope that that shifts and that adjusts, but I do think you're right. I think social media paid, please. The, the other day, um, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, I think, you know, very promising presidential candidate in his own right. He got invited to go on the view. And made a big deal about turning it down mm-hmm. and saying, why would I go on that show and talk to those people? I mean, I, I think you are going to see that tactic more and more because I think in the Republican Party right now, for a lot of people, the enemy, if I may use that terminology, mm. you know, the, the, the enemy is not the Democrats. The enemy is the media. I mean, I, I think I think for a lot of rank and file Republican voters, you know, that's what they loved about Trump was just a willingness to bash the media and to just absolutely go smash mouth with the media every day. Mm. And so and so as much as they want to beat Democrats, I think I think a lot of Republicans want to beat the media. Yeah, it feels that and way. So, and I and I feel like these candidates, having watched Trump successfully uh, do that, are, are going to pick up on it and evolve it. You know, what's the next evolution of of playing to that instinct? And mm-hmm. so I think DeSantis choosing not to go on The View was was part of that evolution. And I suspect you're going to see more things like that. That's interesting. What do you typically find when you're when you're writing a column? How often are you writing? Because I, I know you're doing quite a bit of that. Are you writing every week? Are you writing a couple times a month? How's that go for you? 
Uh, you know, on average, I'm writing two to three a month. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, for a long time, I wrote uh, a regular column for the Courier Journal, my hometown paper in Louisville. I did it once every two weeks. Uh, Gannett decided to stop publishing more national political columns in their local paper. So I sort of shifted focus to writing mostly for USA Today. Mm -hmm. So it's a little less frequent. Uh, but when you when you add it all together, uh, all the different things I have to write and do, it's 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 two to three a month and sometimes more. Um, you know, depending, depending on what's going on in the news. Sure. Do you, um, are, is there an issue that, that really lights up your audience? Like, are, do people get fired up about one thing or another? Like, t how does that for you? Because, because social media is giving people access to writers and columnists and journalists. Is there one issue or another that perhaps has really sort of lit up the audience and had people reach out to you about? Gosh, great question. Well, anytime you write about Trump, Mm -hmm. And if you defend him on an issue, whatever it happens to be, you get uh, lit up by people. Or mm -hmm. if you say he was wrong about something, you also get <laughs> lit up. But but that but but my experience with that, I think, explains political coverage in the last five years, because, you know, consumer, you know, information, consumer engagement. He, he drove so much of it that you can see why, you know, he, he drove you know so many clicks and eyeballs throughout our, yes. our political media space. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Um, I have found that um, because I'm a conservative columnist, if you start to quote Democrat politicians back to liberal readers, they get really upset with you. That, uh -huh. that is that is something that makes people very angry who are inclined not to agree with you in the first place. And and maybe the most troubling thing I hear, and I hear this whether I'm on CNN or whether I write something, is this question. Why is Scott Jennings allowed to speak? You know, why is oh. this person being given a platform mm -hmm. to speak? And I... I do think we are um, I, I think we're having an illiberal moment in the United States. I think there are people on the right and the left who would be perfectly happy if people who disagreed with them were no longer allowed in the town square, you know, yeah. so to speak. And so and so I think that's really, really unhealthy mm -hmm. and really uh, troubling for our for our country. But I, I hear that a lot. You, you look you look at the tweets after you appear, you look at the comments on some of these columns and and a lot of it just revolves around, you know, I don't pick up this newspaper to be, you know, to have somebody say things that I disagree with. I pick yeah. it up. Essentially, they, they want to pick up their new source of choice to have all their priors confirmed. Yeah. You know, they don't they don't want to have their views challenged and they don't want to be intellectually challenged on some issue. They just want to be made to feel better about what they already believe. And I, you know, I, I, I understand that. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like it's more people than we realize who who uh, are just no longer capable of emotionally consuming information that might, you know, that, that might carry some disagreement with them. I, yeah. It's, it's been very strange to, to experience that. And it's, and we're not going back to the way it used to be. That's the one thing I keep saying to people, we are moving forward. So we are, we, whatever it is we're going through this rebirth, this change, people's approach to media and information, the way they consume it, uh, we're not going back. So we have mm -hmm. to figure out a way through and onto the next platform and opportunity where I hope discourse can re be restored, but I'm not sure. All right. It's, it, we're all kind of living in this growth period right now where it will be curious to see to your point we, about. We, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, the technology we have at our disposal makes it all too easy to build an information bubble around yourself mm -hmm. in which you never encounter information that might upset you. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, 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 you with the, just the flip of a few buttons and typing in your email into a few things and, 
uh, you're throwing a few switches on Google. I mean, you you can you can you create can. a total bubble in which Donald Trump is always five minutes from going to jail. Yes. Or in which Donald Trump is five minutes from being reinstated as president. Right. And 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 I think people get very comfortable in these bubbles. And then when they're when they're presented with information from outside the bubble, it makes them very angry. I just I sort of feel like we we've, we've just lost the ability to argue with each other in a way that is is um, is progressive. And I don't mean that in the liberal sense. I mean, argue with each other in a way that advances both people ideas and, and information and people can arrive at a, an agreement or an agreement to disagree about whatever it is. And, and, and a mutual respect about, well, you believe one thing, I believe another. We had a, an argument about it. We had a debate about it. And we're going to go our separate ways. We're not, you know, I wasn't persuaded. You weren't persuaded. But I, you know, I res- I lift my visor and salute you. I respect, and I respect, you. I respect your, yeah. your point of view. And I think you made, I think you made your arguments in good faith. And, right. I, and, I, and, I, and I bring up that phrase because I think there is a, a a reflexive belief among the most partisan people in our society that all arguments being made by the other side are being made in bad faith. Yeah. You know, there is an expectation of bad faith. There is a given that only bad faith exists. And so um, when I'm doing my arguing on television, I try to always think about what can I say here to let people know that I'm actually approaching this in good faith. These are honest mm-hmm you know, authentic views that are born of facts. Mm-hmm. I always try to say things that are honest. I never, I never bring dishonesty uh, to the air. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I, I want to exude good faith and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that's my little corner of the world, but I, because I think, I think bad faith is everywhere. And I think people expect bad faith. And I think if you can shine a little light of good faith in the world, you know, it, it's good for our industry. Well, it comes through in the work you do. And I mean that Thank sincerely. Uh, and I do watch critically because I do media train people myself in my private practice. Um, and I I do think that that it very much comes through factual, kind, even when you are disagreeing with someone on the tube, it feels to me like an exchange like we used to, um, like we used to engage in before all these other factors sort of came in. Uh, Scott, as we get to the end of our conversation, I have to ask you, uh, do you have a recommendation for me for a future guest? I do. Um, and there is a local journalist in my home state of Kentucky who I am quite fond of, uh, who has been at public television in Kentucky for many years. Her name is Renee Shaw. And Renee is the host of the nightly sort of public affairs program on KET, Kentucky Educational Television. She also uh, quite often is the host of the debates they do on oh. KET. And mm-hmm. I mean, she's kind of their main and I have to tell you, uh, as you have as well, you know, you and I have have, have worked with and, and watched and, and been around journalists from all over the country, Washington, New York, everywhere. And I, I would put Renee Shaw up against anybody in terms of overall talent, skill level, nimbleness, preparation. And um, and she sits right out there in, uh, in, in the middle of Kentucky and does a great job every night. I love it. And uh, if I if I could choose one presidential debate moderator for 2024, it'd probably be Renee Shaw. She'd be and, the one. And, and we share a birthday, October the 26th. Oh, all right. Well, happy <laughs> so, early birthday to you guys. <laughs> yes, yes. So, 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 if you're looking for a local journalist, I couldn't recommend Renee Shaw more. I, I think she's just a true talent. I love it. Well, that's the best part about this show is that I get to talk to journalists all over the place. So I'm grateful for that local connection. I'll tell Renee that you nominated her, and I uh, will look forward to seeing you on the tube again soon. Lisa, thank you so much. It's very nice to see you uh, on my computer screen here. I'm going to go uh, 
uh, get ready to to do uh to do my take my beatings as i uh, as i say uh-huh. <laughs> and uh and uh and and talk politics but i really am appreciative of being on your podcast i'm gonna subscribe to it and listen to it i was just looking back through the archives you have you have really interviewed some impressive people so i'm gonna go back and and listen to some of these you do a great job and i appreciate the invitation thank you so much i'll talk to you again soon thank you and that's today's friday reporter podcast a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.